Hello listeners, it's Natalia Mota here. Thank you for listening to Arta Podcast, which simply shares stories behind art. For the last few months, I've been interviewing one of the most successful artists who based in Hong Kong. So if you are curious, you want to feel inspired, or hear how to be an artist in Asia, this podcast is for you. And if you want to learn more about the show, please visit artaapp.com and don't hesitate to leave me a comment. I would love to hear what you think about the show, what you would like to hear in the future, and anything really what is on your mind. Thank you so much. Hello everyone! In today's episode, I am delighted to talk with Indiana Jones of our time, James Prosek. We'll explore how illustrations and paintings of nature contribute to preserve and inspire people to cherish wildlife. In recent months, I've seen more and more art exhibitions related to nature and today I had such a pleasure to chat with an artist who comes to art through his lifelong love of nature. My guest, James, is an American artist famous of his detailed portrait of natural creatures. His best-known work is Trout Illustrated History, published at age of 19 when he was still studying at Yale. Gifted with multi-phase talents, James has been capturing biodiversity of the natural world not only by paintings, but also by writing and filmmaking. He has written for the New York Times and National Geographic magazine and won the Peabody Award in 2003 for his documentary about traveling through England in the footsteps of Isaac Walton. We started our conversation from exploring James' past and his Indiana Jones-style trips across the entire world. We then explored his art techniques and unique materials he recently worked with. And lastly, we talk about the long-term problem with boundaries between our language and nature and why James is so passionate to change the way how we are classifying, collecting and naming natural creatures. I truly hope that you will enjoy the chat as much as I did because James is just an incredible person. And lastly, please forgive me for the background noise in the first 20 minutes of our discussion. We started our conversation at uh, James's uh, show opening and, and soon after it began to be very noisy. So we moved eventually to one of the conference rooms, which uh, was much better for podcasting, yet we, um, the first 20 minutes, uh, you can actually hear a bit of the exhibition. And P.S. If you are in Hong Kong between 6 July and 8 September 2019, you must see James' newest show, The Hidden Forests, you can find more information, where is it, and uh, what you can find there on my show notes. So don't hesitate to, to check it out. Um, it's absolutely amazing and I would recommend it to everyone who is interested in nature. So without further delays, 
Please enjoy episode 11. James, welcome to Hong Kong. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for your time for uh, for the, the quick interview. Thank um, you for your and time. I had such a pleasure to hear your talk um, about the newest exhibition, and I would definitely like to touch base about this and also about your story. So how you started your adventure with nature, um, and maybe we can start actually from there. So if you can tell us. Um, who you are, where are you from, and uh, how did you start uh, your journey? Making pictures. And Making things. pictures, <laughs> yes. Um, well, yeah, my name is James Prosek, and I grew up in a town called Easton in southwestern Connecticut, about an hour from New York City. And uh, even though it's close to Manhattan, it's relatively rural where I grew up. There's a couple of drinking water reservoirs in my town, and when they created these reservoirs, they preserved the land around them to naturally filter the water. So I kind of had this, you know, little mini wilderness playground behind me. Um, My father introduced me to nature through his love of birds. He grew up in Brazil and fell in love with birds as a kid down there. And as a kid, I... um, I was I started drawing birds because it just felt natural to draw the things that I liked and drawing was just always a part of my life for as long as I can remember and there were a couple artists who I copied there was there's a American artist named John, John James Audubon who was famous for painting birds in the, in the 19th century and uh, so Audubon was a huge influence of mine and another artist named Luis Agassiz Fuertes and Winslow Homer was another one. Um, so yeah, the, I just, uh, drawing was sort of a natural <laughs> thing that I did as part of my engagement with the natural world. <laughs> and uh, how did you discover the subject which you like so much, so nature and uh, more specifically, I know that you started from uh, a small obsession a few years obsession uh, uh, towards uh, one species, which is uh, uh, fish, uh, trout. Yeah, yeah, trot. right. Um, <laughs> so if you can tell us a bit more about that. Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I, at some point I was introduced to fishing, yeah, about nine years old by a friend of mine. Uh, and we started, you know, exploring these little streams near our home. Some of them were off-limits to fishing because they're in the water that's protected for the drinking water reservoirs. Um, and I caught my first native brook trout. This, and the trout are fish that live in cold water streams, very clean water. They require, you know, water with a lot of dissolved oxygen, so cold water that's running over stones. And, and I pulled one of these little jewel-like fish out of the water and kind of fell in love with them immediately. And, and I'd been drawing birds and other things, and, and some of my paintings kind of turned from birds into fish. <laughs> and uh, and I it led to an exploration that lasted from like nine years old to twenty four of you know recording the native diversity of trout, first of North America and then trout of Europe and Asia and North Africa. I you know this was in the early 1980s before the internet so if you want to do research on a topic you went to the library and my father always told me that 
he could learn anything in the library and looking at books. And so mm -hmm. um, that was one you know gift that he gave me was the idea that you could teach yourself anything, sort of being self-taught. And I was mm -hmm. primarily self-taught as a painter because nobody really taught me how to paint. But um, so I couldn't find a book on the trout of North America, so I thought it. 11 years old that I'll make a book on the trout in North America and I started writing letters to departments of wildlife around the country asking what kind of fish do you, you know, do you have any native trout and, and I got these really nice responses from people who had studied a particular type of trout for many years and started to put together a list of all these fish and painting them and along the way um, I realized that it wasn't so simple trying to make a list of all the species of trout because the these biologists couldn't agree on how many species there were or even what a species was, the definition of what a species was. So this, this led to a, a longer-term, lifelong inquiry about how and why we name and order nature and how we take an interconnected nature and fragment it into pieces and label them. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. fundamentally, I was just attracted to the beauty of these fish and I wanted to document it and watercolor was the medium that I did it in and I also loved the fishing I loved fly fishing which a pastime where you create an imitation a surrogate of an insect with fur and feathers tied to a hook and you cast mm -hmm. it out into the river and if a fish eats it mm -hmm, then you mm -hmm. you know you catch then, the then fish you're lucky. <laughs> there's a only later did I start to make sort of a connection between drawing and and fishing and making these imitations of nature because the drawings were imitations of mm -hmm. the animals I was trying to catch and the, the flies that we used to catch them were mm -hmm. imitations of insects, a three-dimensional sculptural object yeah. that allowed you essentially to communicate with a fish across mm -hmm. millions of years of mm -hmm. evolution. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. It, so that was also self-taught. Like, did you just um, learning how? Read, uh, yeah, from books. And um, now you know, if you were a kid growing up and you were interested in that, there'd be thousands of videos showing you how to tie. But back yeah, then, it was yeah. just a couple of books. And my friend Stephen's uncle sort of showed us a few things too. But mm -hmm, but this mm -hmm. is a tradition that you know goes back thousands of years in Europe and. Um, the earliest references are from Macedonian Greece in the you know early second century AD that time period, mm -hmm. but it's probably much older than that. So, well, you were 11, so I'm not sure if you remember, <laughs> but um, how long it took you to actually from from the idea of okay, I'm going to to fish and I'm, let me try this new technique which I heard about. To actually yeah. catching a fish, that, uh, that fly, this, with fly fishing, with or, fly fishing. Yeah, because yes. at first we were fishing just with lures or bait, and you cast those out and reel them in. And it's a little yeah. bit less technical, but fly fishing it took us. Yeah, it took a while, and um, I mean to become proficient, it took a couple of years. But it, we were cat. You know, we were we started catching fish a couple of months into trying and. You know, we had, I did have a neighbor who taught me some things about fly fishing, this older guy who mm -hmm, mm -hmm. took me to this um, river where there were a lot of fish and it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that yeah, was, yeah. I remember very clearly catching my first trout on a fly and it was really, it's very visual because if you're, if you're fishing 
Mm -hmm. um, yes. With an insect that, with a fly that imitates an adult insect that's floating on the surface of the water, so you actually see the fish come up and grab it, mm -hmm. and, it's, oh, wow. and then you're connected to the fish. So it's it's a very visual and wow. visceral experience. Yeah. Great, great, great. Um, and I'm sure and they I'm, do it in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I actually I, I never been unfortunately into you know, my uh, my father unfortunately teach me how to. Uh, how to, to ride a bike and, uh, oh, really? and that's, that's, that <laughs> that's was it. it. Uh, we were not uh, as close to nature. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm so happy to explore and maybe I will check it out. Maybe yeah, I will yeah, try, I can try take out. You uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So talking about fishing and I, uh, from your talk, I actually discovered how much you travel to, right, to actually right. capture different uh, types of, of trout. So could you tell us a bit more about your travel and how this all started? And as you mentioned, you were very young. So how did you uh, actually push it forward and, and make it happen? As a career kind of? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I started to assemble all of these paintings of different trout and did research. And I, I, I met people after you know, the early correspondences with these different biologists um, mm. in places like Colorado or Wyoming or even closer to home in Maine or New Hampshire, you know, states closer to me. Um, at a certain point, I started visiting some of these places and people and developing a network of these, you know, people who study these different fish. And, um, and they were all very friendly and um, helped me out. And so I... You know, from 9 to 17, I had a list, developed a list of maybe 70 different fish and, and painted them all. And I sent out, when I was a freshman in college, first year of college, university, I sent out 10 proposals to 10 different publishers, book publishers, to do a book on the trout of North America. And I was rejected from 9 very quickly and then <laughs> found one publisher who was very interested in it. It happened to be a very prestigious publishing house, Alfred Knopf, which is a division of mm -hmm. Random House. Mm -hmm. And the editor who was interested was one of the top fiction editors, and so he had he had some clout. And mm -hmm. In any case, um, he I met with him, and um, he he was interested in doing the book. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of months, and I I left him like. 300 messages on his phone. <laughs> and then somehow it ended up happening. I mean, it, these things always happen yeah. in weird ways. It's a longer story. but uh, So the book came out in um, spring of 1996. I guess I was 20 years old. And it, it was uh, my third junior year in university. And, um, and the book did, I was studying to become an architect, and the book did well enough that I thought, well, maybe I'll keep trying to write books and, and um, paint. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was the first book, and it was a book of 70 paintings of the trout in North America. Mm -hmm. I painted them over three separate times, like the whole mm -hmm. complete group. Mm -hmm. And each time I felt they got a little maybe better. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then uh, my second book was actually a book um, about my relationship with a, a game warden, like a fishing policeman who caught me fishing illegally when I was like 14 in one of these reservoirs. And he became kind of like a mentor, an outdoor mentor, and taught me a lot about mm -hmm. foraging for 
mushrooms or hunting and fishing. So that's the world I kind of grew up in. And it was always about a connection with the natural world. And, and I don't know what point I started examining that relationship, but I think it was pretty early on in how we communicate the natural world, how we depict it. You know, the, the, my first way into looking at nature were through these field guides, these books, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where there's a name of a bird and then a picture of a bird, yeah, 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 or a name of a snake and a picture of a snake, and they're sort of simplified pictures, reduced forms, um, and, uh, you know, isolated on a white background, removed from the national environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that order, you know, all the birds lined up neatly mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, the names mm-hmm. next to them. But it, when I started actually working on the trout book, I realized that nature isn't like that. It's not like a soldiers lined up in a battalion. It's mm-hmm. actually really messy mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm, web-like mm-hmm. and interconnected. So mm-hmm. through these sort of very innocent um, interests, I became deeply involved in thinking about things that were mm-hmm. maybe not as simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, in any case, yeah, so I just kept um, following the river, so to speak, and, and did further books. One was about um, uh, fishing the latitude line of my home around the world in a circle, so 41 degrees north. And, and uh, so Connecticut and New York, the latitude would hit across the Atlantic, Portugal, Spain, Mm -hmm. Italy, Albania, the Balkans, Greece, Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and some of the stand countries, Kyrgyzstan, then China, Mongolia-ish, Eastern Russia, and then across to California and back through the United States. So so that was a book I did, and then that provided the research for a book on the trout of Europe and Asia and North Africa, but I made several many trips to different places um, and it was an interesting time I think to travel in uh, former Soviet republics because it was the mid 90s late 90s so mm-hmm. sort of perestroika and how mm-hmm. some of these countries have become independent Armenia Kyrgyzstan and they they didn't really seem to know how to run themselves as, <laughs> and a lot of people we talked to lamented the end of communism because at least they had a paycheck and stuff but so and and people were uh, didn't have a lot you know they were in some cases having trouble even getting enough food for themselves but they were always super generous to us as like travelers us being myself and I primarily was traveling with this Austrian man who I became friends with who was a baker by profession so he but he had this equally odd obsession with trout. <laughs> and uh, he didn't even like fishing for them. He just wanted to capture, document them, record their behavior, like write scientific papers. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So his primary method of catching the fish was to dive in the water with a wetsuit <laughs> and catch them in nets, like a little handheld net. Nice. And so he was totally nuts. <laughs> 
we had some interesting adventures in different I did, places. I just wanted to ask about this because you visited so many countries and yeah. as you mentioned, Mostly very Northern specific times yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, could you share with us like, uh, at least one uh, story yeah. which was uh, very memorable? Yeah, I mean, the, the first major trip we went on together, I flew to Austria to his little town, Sankt Veit under Glan, which is in southern Austria in the Corinthian, um, I think they call it Corinthia, I forget what the, the southern Alps, I don't know what they call mm -hmm. the mountains, but very close to the Slovenian border. Mm -hmm. And so we, we um, I actually found out about him through a biologist in America who was he was sort of the world authority on trout, this guy at Colorado State University. And I'd written him because I wanted to look for trout in the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates in Eastern mm -hmm. Turkey. It's a longer story, but <laughs> anyway, he said he'd only known of one person who'd looked for trout in that region of Southeast Turkey, and it was this Austrian businessman. He didn't know anything, he didn't know he was a baker, and, mm -hmm. and he gave me his address, so I wrote this guy, Johannes Schiffman, and he wrote back, and I ended up visiting him because I, I was in Paris with my family. I took a train all the way to southern Austria, and <laughs> we realized we didn't really have a common language. Spanish was our best common language at that time, <laughs> and my Spanish was pretty bad. But we got by, and so we decided to um, put together a trip the following summer to go to southeast Turkey. Mm -hmm. So we drove to Trieste, Northern Italy, took a ferry to Igomenitsa, Greece, and we drove through Greece and Turkey all the way within 30 kilometers of the Iraqi border. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, But a lot of other places. And Turkey is really interesting for trout evolution. <laughs> it's more than you want to know for an art podcast. but because there's rivers flowing to several different oceans. So there's rivers draining the Mediterranean, there's rivers draining to the Caspian Sea, yeah. there's rivers draining to the Black Sea, and then there's rivers draining to the Persian Gulf, the Tigris mm -hmm. and Euphrates go mm -hmm. all the way down the Persian Gulf. So when you have fish that are isolated in different river drainages, over time they evolve into different kinds of trout. Mm -hmm. But then in, at certain points in over geological history, there's glacial periods where parts get frozen or there's melted, more water melted, and trout can actually cross over mountain divides yeah, and yeah, yeah. through headwater connections. So you not only have the trout from these four drainages, but you also have mixing at different times. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, so we tried to cover those major regions, but the Southeast Turkey was sort of difficult to travel in because the Kurdish people were trying to separate and I think still are from the Turkish government. So there was a lot of active military down there and it was every, you know, 100 kilometers or so they, they would search, them? they'd take everything out of the car and put it back and they'd say, what are you doing here? And we'd say, alabalik, which is the word for trout, and show them our fishing here. And they're like, what are you doing? And Austrian and Americans no, looking they, for trout. It yeah, they must sense. be a drug, uh, drug um, yeah, some, trafficking. Uh. They, luckily, they didn't put us in prison. <laughs> but uh, most people were really nice, and even the military weren't really bad. They were mostly just young 
like 18 year olds with guns and we'd make sure we'd carry enough cigarettes to give them and just kind of move on. That's what I remember. It's like if, yeah. you, if police stop you in the 80s in between Poland, Ukraine, oh, etc., really? it's always cigarettes. So you have cigarettes, you're fine. Yeah, <laughs> so we, we always had a lot of cigarettes. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. We drove to uh, southeast Turkey to a town called Çatak, which is on maybe 30 kilometers from the Iraqi border. And we were usually told by the locals, you know, you're good in this area until like five o'clock and then there's a military operation coming in, so you should probably get out by then. So in this case, we, yeah, we were in looking, fishing in this tributary of the Tigris River, and I think it was called Chatak Chai. And they call the rivers Chai a lot of times because they look like tea colored, sort of. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so we left the area. We started back on the road to Lake Van. There's a big lake, and I think it's where Gorky was from, the painter. Van, mm, yeah, Van yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. He was Armenian, Turkish. Uh, anyway, um, and on the way back, we passed like all these tanks and military vehicles, and I think they were trying to, you know, the Turkish military trying to suppress some um, Kurdish people. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, and then on the way back, we drove through Macedonia, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, back to Slovenia and Austria. And we were, it was in the 1997, I think. Um, and there were still active fighting going on in the Balkans. And we had trouble getting across the border from Serbia into Croatia or Bosnia. And they were only taking um, Deutschmarks and we had <laughs> dollars and some other currencies and we couldn't exchange money so we were running out of fuel and and again there are people who stop you and you're not even sure they're real policemen or not and but I remember we eventually found and we stopped at one border crossing they wouldn't let us across and then we came to another border crossing and I remember the guy looking at my passport and he said Proshek and it's <laughs> 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 like maybe you thought it was Whatever it was, the response was good, and he's like, okay. <laughs> I know there's a Croatian wine called Prošek. But anyway, um, so that was an adventure. We were very relieved to get through Serbia and into Croatia, and um, uh, we drank a lot that night. But we found some... Ba the Balkans have really interesting trout diversity, so it was really just following this crazy childhood passion. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I have a tendency to latch onto certain subjects and, mm -hmm. and then follow them as far as I can. And I've been, I've been lucky for the most part that I've, I've, I've sort of stuck to things that I'm really truly inwardly interested in and passionate about, and the rest has kind of worked out somehow. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As a freelance writer and artist or whatever terms you want to use to describe what I do, you know, it, it's, uh, mm -hmm. um, I don't think you can fake it and really, you know, put everything you need to put into it that's mm -hmm. required to make a living mm -hmm. doing it, because it's really more than full-time. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you describe yourself, actually, because it's so many elements to, to what you do, so you are, you are an explorer, you are <laughs> artist, you are um, you are writer, um, 
you are also husband and and uh, <laughs> father. Uh, so how 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 would you describe yourself? What is your favorite way to um, to introduce you? Well, it's a it's a it's a very interesting question and one that's really relevant to my personal interest because, as I said before, the the whole uh, quest to put together a list of all the trout of North America led me to understand that there's no way to easily classify the different types of trout into categories. So um, whenever we take the world, which is really kind of holistic and interconnected and constantly changing, and try to impose terms on it, um, these these terms or words put little walls around things in our minds. And, and we do this to ourselves in our own work, in our societies, in our daily lives. So when you meet somebody at a cocktail party and say, so what do you do? It's, it's really mm -hmm. hard to put that into a three-second soundbite because we're all many things. I mean, we're, whether we're travelers or parents or, um, but then there's something on your business card which distills it down to. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's taken me a long time to apply the term artist to myself because my father was kind of pragmatic. He he always encouraged my artwork uh, and my drawing, but it was never something that I was allowed to do. As a, not allowed, but supposed, you know, artists starved. It wasn't you couldn't really make a living as an artist. So, so I thought I, you know, thought I'd found a profession that applied my loves of drawing and art history and stuff and and that was architecture and i i think i would have probably enjoyed being an architect but um but i started doing these books and and um and making drawings for them and i think i finally at 44 years old i feel comfortable using the term artist as applied to myself and i think it's a good kind of catch-all for somebody who likes to create and make things mm -hmm. but i as part of my art practice, I guess, I also write and I spend a lot of time writing and I think just writing is a really good way to synthesize your thinking and to work through thoughts and um, I've been keeping a journal since I was 11 years old and um, it's it's become less and less linear. <laughs> it's like yeah. I. I try to write when I have time, and sometimes it's just on airplanes, and I'll glue little things in that remind me of things that I've been doing. But but yeah, artist, writer, I guess, are two terms that I apply mm -hmm. to myself. But it's it's hard for anybody to really distill their identity to yeah. a word. And just to go back to just what you what you just said. Um, you are keeping journal. Are you still using journals on your daily basis? Are you still? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, it's mm -hmm. almost always with me. I can show mm -hmm. you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, for the projects here at Asia Society, um, for instance, I went, um, you know, to different places to look for um, ruffling of papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we went to. Um, my po I just make these silly little drawings and this mm -hmm. is going out to the mangrove estuary um uh called my po and seeing the the big you know city of Shenzhen in the distance was pretty amazing having this 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I glue things in there, it's a little piece of bamboo. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and awesome. it, but it's kind of not as uh, it's not as thorough as it used to be. But I even have an, an early sketch of the mural that I did here, which is pretty mm -hmm. pretty much what it is. But it's, there's a little <laughs> tiger sitting on the rock. So that's how you start working on the project? Yeah. Like, are you starting from writing down what you're planning to do and then kind of try to go for your... your, your... Yeah, I guess it's a way of kind of working through thoughts. And mm -hmm. um, But I make little sketches that are just for memory, sometimes looking at things directly. But whenever I make things just without, you know, mm -hmm. from memory, they're always very kind of cartoonish and mm -hmm. inaccurate, which is part of what's helpful about mm -hmm. the process, I guess. Are you but, are you finding sketches easier to is it is it the word easier to translate what you what you actually want to say or is it sketches? Like what it's what it's for you know, you? I I don't even necessarily go back and look at these when I'm working on the other but I think the process of making the sketches and the writing it is what internalizes the thoughts, mm -hmm. but I it's I don't even use it as a reference necessarily and mm -hmm. go back and look at it once it's sort of done. When I'm working on a book, I do sometimes because I need to remember place names or things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But um, for the artwork, yeah, I just usually just writing it down and and doing the sketches helps fix the mm -hmm. experience in my memory mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and. Uh, talking about about your your art, um, so can you tell us how your artworks transform over the time? Because it's it's already a few decades where uh, you are uh, you are an artist, and and it transforms a bit. And I know that in some uh, process when you start to work on this, what you mentioned, like how names. Um, kind of connect to, to nature or disconnect maybe with nature. Um, so if you can tell us a bit more about your transformation as, as an artist and, and if you change your techniques and what do you like to uh, incorporate <laughs> in your drawings? Yeah, well, as we you know talked about, I, I painted a lot of trout for these books. <laughs> and, they, and they were meant to be fairly accurate representations of these fish, but Fish are, when you catch a fish and you pull it out of the water, its colors fade almost immediately after you take them out of the water. So it's not as sort of simple as you would think. It's You can take a picture of the fish and, and let it go, and but even a photograph can't really capture that moment when it first enters, leaves the water and enters your world in the air. So a lot of it, the, the painting ends up being about experience and memory. So... To me, those paintings of trout weren't just paintings of trout or illustrations of fish. They were just documents of personal experiences, and they were very profound experiences for me. Every one of those fish is, was an individual that I remembered seeing. Not some cases I painted from, you know, fish that I hadn't seen myself. But um, so, but I did, you know, in the process of doing the first book on trout, I. As I mentioned, I started thinking about the impossibility of taking this complex, interconnected world. Mm -hmm. um, we've all evolved from common ancestors going back millions of years on this evolutionary timeline. And um, when you take an interconnected continuum and um, try to communicate it through language, 
arguably the most powerful tool that humans have created. You have to take this um, holistic, interconnected world and draw lines between things and say this is this and that's that. And um, But those lines don't exist in nature necessarily. We draw them. So that's why there was so much confusion among these biologists about how many different kinds of trout there were. You, you can't really get consensus on it because we're imposing a structure on the world that's not real, um, hoping that it's close enough to communicate reality. But I started to become critical of um, humans living in the map that they created to navigate the world yeah. and not the real terrain that the map was based on. So if you live too much through the lens of language, you lose sight of what the real interconnected world is about. So once I'd painted a couple thousand trout, <laughs> or hundreds at least, and finished the second book, I was probably 24 or something, and I, I started wanting to make work that um, communicated some of these ideas that I was having about what happens when we put words on a world that doesn't have words on it, mm -hmm. and the relationship between lang language and nature. And I didn't even necessarily know that that's what I was interested in or doing, but it became clear, maybe in the process of trying to make work that communicated my frustrations with what language couldn't do. And it really, I, I, I was critical of language for a long time for having to fragment the world in order to communicate it. And more recently, I've realized that, first of all, we have to do it because we can't have units of knowledge or things at all if we don't separate the world. Um, but it's also the the spaces between the words that we make and the walls that they build and the boundaries around them. If we didn't have that process, then we wouldn't have the urge to fill the spaces between the mm -hmm. words. And I feel like that's what partly what art and music and dance and different experiential media, mediums, media do um, or try to do. Um, so... It's actually the failure of language that's part of its beauty. But so some of the first works I made that were, uh, that tried to carry these ideas, uh, I guess you could call them conceptual perhaps. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I, I discovered the whole wor world of contemporary art, which is a really strange world in a way because it, it's kind of quasi academic, but there's a lot of baloney thrown around. <laughs> but at least people are, <laughs> People are living in the world of ideas, which I always liked, without having to necessarily work in an institution like university, which didn't really suit my temperament, going to work and having a job. <laughs> so um, it felt like it was a world that suited what I wanted to try to do. And um, so some of the first works I made were these hybrid creatures that combined uh, different animals like a bird and a fish. Yeah, I love this part. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's really really and it's it's really bringing this what you said. It's uh you cannot really describe. It's it's not it's not it's not the one creature. It's it's multiply of uh of creatures, right? Together. Yeah. So it's really bringing. Yeah, it's it's so literally what what you want to say. It's it's the boundaries, right? So right. Well, you're, the, the hybrid the hybrid helps you transcend the boundaries by 
And and at first they were sort of literal representations of words that we've applied to animals, like a parrotfish is a I explained the other day is in the talk is a is a fish that lives in Caribbean waters with a mouth that looks like a parrot's beak. So somebody made this mental association because the, the mouth of the fish looks like a parrot's beak and called it a parrotfish. So I started painting literal representations of the names as if the fish or the creature was um, changing its body in protest of, of us trying to make sense of it through language. So becoming its name in a sort of, um, yeah, uh, again, in a sort of like F-U sort of <laughs> kind of way. But yeah, hybrids are, when we first make them, they're nameless. They're they're sort of, it's like a visual metaphor. They combine two things that um, are sometimes very different and live in this liminal area, sometimes, you know, between like a mermaid, between human and fish. And and it creates a beautiful place in the mind that allows us to overcome the boundaries that, that we create, not just with words, but um, in other ways too. So hybridity is a, a theme that runs through my work. And it uh, it's also a theme, obviously, that runs through art, going back mm -hmm. to you know uh, classical Greece and way before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, humans with horse bodies or um, hippocampus, like a, a sea, a sea going horse or, um, so it's a rich, it's a, hybrids are sort of, perhaps even the creation of hybrids helped our, our imaginations evolve and become mm -hmm. more rich. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, so those were some of the first things that I did that were a little bit, uh, more about the thoughts in my head than about what I was actually looking at. Mm -hmm. But I still, I can't help myself. I still, I'm so in love with the forms that nature actually makes through the forces of evolution over time that I still like to just draw fish and <laughs> make uh, flowers that resemble flowers out of clay or this, the, the whole idea of representation, humans making things that look like things in nature has been become a topic that's of great interest to me like why would a human even bother to draw an animal on a cave wall what's the point and why did they keep doing it for tens of thousands of years and i have my own you know theories but i'm you know i'm just really interested in why humans draw and why they i mean the abstraction has always existed but um why they try to represent or imitate something in nature mm -hmm. and again i think that drawing was a tool that really helped um expand our minds and make us helped us become more acute observers of our environment and then once we had a drawing we could communicate to other people mm -hmm. an animal or a thing when it wasn't even in the room with us which is a really powerful idea absolutely yeah and in point of your technique um, when you are drawing, what's for you important? Are you working with colors? Are colors very important to you? Uh, and also, like I understand as you are working with live objects, uh, I mean, you cannot really spend uh, one week with dead fish in the same room because probably it will yeah. uh, <laughs> dissolve a bit. Um, so 
if you can tell us more about your process, like um, are you first sketching it and then maybe taking it to your studio to finish it up and get the colors, the right colors. Like if you can tell us uh, if you like stippling or any yeah, yeah. other technique. Which, yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, when I was painting the trout, usually I actually, I'd say 90% of the time I let the fish go because uh, when we were traveling, though, we would eat them sometimes in Turkey <laughs> just because it's a good food source. But Because um, you couldn't exchange money and you were starving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, or we'd, it's funny. Sometimes we'd bring a fish to a local side, side of the road little restaurant or cafe. And a couple of times we brought like really nice sized fish. And they would bring out something totally different. And we never... We were always afraid to like question like where's the fish that we actually brought, but they would bring out something different and they'd go eat our fish probably. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. So specimens, you know, especially fish, like you said, they don't the colors fade and they they get kind of yucky. And some, but I I definitely did rely on actual specimens and, and a lot of works. But um, but I was trying to capture again that ephemerality that that glow that they have when they're alive and as they die it's lost so a lot of that really is just the only thing that can capture is your imagination so um, I was painting from photographs I took of the fish but also sketches and um, and just my memory of the experience mm -hmm. um, but color was yeah I painted mostly in watercolors and colored pencils and mm -hmm. color just has always made me happy when I when the too much time went by when I wasn't painting, I would always get a little hmm. depressed. But um, but whenever I painted again, I realized that just just the beauty of manipulating color makes me happy. Mm -hmm. um, but watercolor on paper was a primary medium of mine for most of my life. But I also work with acrylics and oils and pen and ink and etching and... Um, monotypes. I like printmaking a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I make three-dimensional objects with different materials. Um, wood, and sometimes those objects become, make molds and made a few bronze um, sculptures. So I just, I just like exploring whatever tools are available to me. The murals I do of these silhouettes start out as a drawing hand done drawing and then I draw some of the creatures on the computer and then I once they're digitized I can move them around and compose the picture um, and then we print it out on big sheets of paper and then trace it on the wall by hand and then paint it by hand on the wall so it it starts out as a drawing it becomes digital and then it becomes hand done again so it goes from analog to digital and back to analog um, but I'm open to whatever materials I'm handed and I like I like switching back and forth but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I guess the most consistent technique that I've used is making a graphite drawing mm -hmm. um, and then painting on paper with mm -hmm. watercolor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and gouache uh, using mm -hmm. animal hair brushes mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there anything which you are planning to, or you are curious to, to check it out in point of like new materials or new technique, which uh, 
which is somewhere there, like uh, it can be new technology or something like Asian, actually. Uh, Asian? Uh, Asian or... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been influenced a lot by Asian art. And one one technique that I picked up from trips to Japan was inking fish, You're taking a dead fish, putting ink on it and stamping it on paper. It's called gitaku. And, and I, when I was working on this book about eels that... Um, I I wrote a book about freshwater eels that I researched for maybe 12 years. Um, I wanted to make... Eels are very important in Japanese culture, but they never use eels in these gotaku prints. So when I went home, I started inking eels, and I found that they leave a really interesting impression, the skin of the fish, and I stamped them over and over thousands of times to create these abstractions. So the fish is... You're using the fish essentially as the brush, to make yeah, the work yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. sort of hyper real because it's actually an impression of the fish but when you step back and you see these things accumulated thousands of times they look like big kind of abstractions mm-hmm. um, so that's definitely a technique that was influenced by trips to Asia most recently I was working on a sculpture of a a trophy head of a deer you know <laughs> but it has the surface of burned wood so we we scanned, a 3D scanned the surface of a deer head and then scanned um, the wood surface of a burned log and then on a, comp- on a, on a um, program called ZBrush, which is something that um, computer graphics people use in movies and stuff, we took the skin of the wood and put it over the, the deer body and then had it milled at, with this milling machine. And then that will a mold will be made from that, and then it'll be cast in bronze. So it's a multi-step process that actually took a couple of years to figure out. Wow! And I we're not done, so I don't know how it'll end up, but um, definitely an investment in finding people to help. Who you know, I'm, I don't actually cast this thing in bronze myself. You go to a foundry and work with people. So creating those or finding the right people to work with is also part of the mm-hmm. the fun and the challenge but so i yeah i, I don't have anything against um using whatever technology is available mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> to communicate mm-hmm. to get the product mm-hmm. that i want mm-hmm. in the end yeah it's really funny that you mentioned about this japanese technique of the uh, putting the fish in the ink because actually two days ago i interviewed i chat with this Japanese artist really? who is using exactly this technique, uh, but he changed it a bit. He kind of uh, make it modern, and instead of fish, he's using a steak. A um, steak. To, a steak. Yeah, putting in the ink, and he it's 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 a background to um, to to other stuff which he's uh, painting in also different uh, techniques, and it's very interesting that actually in one week uh, I met two artists <laughs> who who thought about this and found it very interesting. Wow. It's a very uh, old uh, technique, right? Uh, well, um, it was uh, a technique that I think fishermen used. It, yeah. was, it wasn't an art technique. Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah, blue-collar... To measure kind of, the fish, Kind right? of to document the fish, but it yeah. but it leaves such a beautiful impression, the scales and the... And they print on rice paper, and um, it's remarkable how much detail you, you see. Um, and they almost look like fossils, so I just love the way they looked. But um, yeah, I think originally it probably started as not with the intention of 
of art, but just documenting mm -hmm, the fish mm -hmm. that you caught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's fun. Interesting, interesting. And talking about Asia, um, now we are you are in Hong Kong. So if you can tell us what you are doing here and uh, and yeah, and tell us a bit more about uh, your show here. Yeah, so I'm part of a group show related to the environment around Hong Kong, mostly focused on trees uh, and the history of Hong Kong and forests of the island. Uh, Hong Kong was, you know, a lush subtropical environment with possibly as many as 250 species of trees at one point. And then 700 years ago, they started deforesting the island to grow tea and terracing the hills. Um, so that they could grow more crops and and then through different occupations and people coming through they continued to cultivate the land uh, and the native plants survived only in a few places where they couldn't grow things or at the edges of ravines or mountains or where it's too steep or next to steep stream beds and um, so lately in part influenced by the environmental movements in different parts of the world, there are people who are trying to restore the native forest to parts of Hong Kong. You can't everywhere. Uh, but in any case, I yeah, I began that conversation with uh, the curator here, Catherine, and I met her, her. My work was introduced to her by a friend of mine who teaches art history at Hong Kong University in Yiwan. And so... Kat wanted to do a show related to the environment. And at first we were talking about doing something about the marine history of Hong Kong, like the fishes and stuff. And then it became about the land and the trees. And then I came over in March to do research on the flora and fauna of Hong Kong to do this mural um, on a 50-foot, 16-meter wall that they have at the Asia Society. And so I, they helped facilitate connections with different ecologists at Hong Kong University and, and at Kaduri Farms Botanical Garden in the New Territories. And I met some wonderful people who took me around and spent some time in the field and learned some <laughs> things. And then I went home and I designed this mural and then came back and we painted it um, Yeah, with six people. It took five days, I think, to paint. But yeah, it's been it's been a great experience and I... When I first started talking to Kat about the show, I had no idea that there was so much wildness and natural diversity around Hong Kong. And it's such a beautiful city because it's immersed in a jungle. <laughs> it's so the hills are green right up to the tippity top. And there's still healthy estuarine environments like Mai Po um, Wildlife Sanctuary, which is a World Wildlife Fund property. And it looks like, a, at least to me, a very healthy mangrove ecosystem, a lot mm -hmm. of bird life. There's more um, residents of Hong Kong who are becoming interested in, in bird watching and things like that. And, and that's really good, I think, for the long-term health of the island, because if you have more people who love the animals and care about them, then they'll want to protect them. Absolutely. So I think it's a good time to be, you know... I think it's a good time in terms of awareness and um, hopefully what they'll be able to accomplish in this in this region. But uh, 
Yeah, so the whole there's other artists in the exhibition, and it's um, it's been a lot of fun to be a part of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, are you planning in the future come back to Hong Kong and uh, any further <laughs> exploration? Well, it's not such a big city uh, country. I hope so. You're <laughs> telling me about the beaches. I think. I need yeah. To <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. I need to come back and see the more of the, the seaside and Absolutely. yeah I love it I need it's I wish it wasn't so far from New York but um mm-hmm. I really want to come back yeah. now we have direct flights so you know it's not bad from New York it's not yeah. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah perfect um is it anything else which you would like to add for ARCA listeners um about yeah. your art about about what you do and or what you are planning to do in the near future. Yeah, well, I I'm working on an exhibition for next February at the Yale University Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. And um I'm combining objects from the Natural History Museum and the Art Museum with some of my own works. And the working title is Art Artifact Artifice and it's partly about these artificial lines we draw and mm-hmm. how we classify objects. So what's art, what's an artifact and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. questioning some of those boundaries but Very it's a continuation of all these these themes but um i'm looking forward to you know putting mm-hmm. that together mm-hmm. bringing well, like a dinosaur skull into the art gallery and stuff like that <laughs> so interesting and when when it's going to happen like Feb- do you know february 2020 it opens yeah in u.s in the u.s in new haven connecticut mm-hmm. yeah perfect 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 and um you know, I always asking this question, which is a bit tricky, but I always asking with who you would like to hang out, uh, <laughs> if you could, um, any artist, dead or alive. Dead or alive. Yeah. Whoa. And artists, it's, as you said, artists, it's, um, it's musician, it's, uh, maybe like some sports person. Oh my person gosh. Event. So That's it's really kind of, hard. Kind of broad. Um, boy. <laughs> Wow. Uh, well, the I don't know. The first thing that came to mind was this American artist, Winslow Homer, mm-hmm. who I think was the best watercolor painter of all time. But uh, as soon as I get up and leave the room, I'm going to think of like 10 more of it. <laughs> There's so many. I mean, but that's good. It's usually the first one. John uh, Lennon would be great, you know. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. a big Beatles fan. Um, awesome. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. I need to... Uh, See, George Harrison was pretty cool. It would have been fun to meet, but <laughs> but I think it'd be more fun to go further back in time. Maybe Durer, Albrecht Durer, you know, who was the guy who drew those famous drawings of like the rabbit and the rhinoceros. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, but he was just such an incredible painter that maybe Durer would be fun. Mm-hmm. So many. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I would also probably go back in time and you know like yeah. to see. Like, I'd like to go back to when they were drawing in cave walls yeah. thirty thousand right? years ago. And then ask them why, and then yeah, if I could then, communicate with them, yeah. yeah, that would probably be the best. Some some cave artists. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if there was some way to ask them, why it's, are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be the ultimate. You see, like we we leave so many traits about us, like what we think in twenty first century, because we all collect so many objects, and and uh, back then, like there was there was literally no consumerism, right? So there was no uh, 
nothing which could give us any signs of what they actually thought. It's it's just the paintings on the wall which which yeah we we can we can interpret it in so many different ways. So did um, they done it because they wanted to show that there is a tiger and uh, maybe you should avoid this place or <laughs> yeah. because they they actually cherish this lion right it's like you never know I right so it's we'll really it's so many people speculate but i don't think there's any way of knowing for yeah. sure yeah. yeah yeah but they're remarkable drawings um and my last question would be where your fans can find you offline and online. <laughs> so for the, for, for, for the next uh, 24 hours, you are in Hong Kong, but uh, mm -hmm. normally you are in the US. Uh, mm. um, what about, you also um, uh, created uh, 13 books, right? Is it correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you can tell us where we can find where those can books, get the books. Yeah. Uh, because we touch base only uh, like fraction of what right. you have done. Uh, oh, over the years, nice. so so it would be great if if someone want to explore a bit more about the eels, which are so interesting, and it would be another one and a half hour probably <laughs> topic, and uh, the same uh, birds which we didn't touch so much, and all your um, expeditions all around the world, which it's a huge separate topic. So if you can tell us a bit more where where we can uh, find you um, and your thoughts. Yeah, well, I, I have a website, which is just my name.com, jamesprosek.com, and I'm on Instagram, just my name, <laughs> um, in terms of the internet-type media. Uh, my books are available on Amazon.com. Most of them are in print, but even if they're out of print, you can buy inexpensive copies, um, maybe at the library. If you're in America, some library would have my books, um, but definitely Amazon. Um, I try to update my website about exhibitions that are coming up or lectures, but I rarely do <laughs> before they actually happen. <laughs> um, so, but I live in, I live in Connecticut in a town called Easton. And, um, so I guess you could come by my studio. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would, uh, yeah, I, I love to travel myself. So yeah. I would be so happy to, to once visit you, uh, yeah, and, and, and see this beautiful pond which you were talking about as well and yeah and i live nature. on the same street where i grew up so i have a very intimate relationship with my mm -hmm. local environment great 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 well so i think that's it thank you so much again for your time thank um, you so and much it's such a pleasure to see in hong kong and it's so great to see um also that that nature it's uh it's, it's so in fashion now that uh, uh, people want to create shows and coming here. Today was the grand opening and I saw so many families with children and it's great for education as well, uh, the younger generation. So it's great to see it. And, and again, thank you so much for your work and for traveling so much and sometimes risking your life on the borders <laughs> to, to, to bring on this borders, knowledge. right? Borders are so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, thank you, Natalia. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Um, pleasure from my mm -hmm. side. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, my conversation with James. And please, as always, don't hesitate to leave me a comment at uh, my website, artaapp.com. Thank you so much again for listening. And I wish you a great day. Thank you. <laughs>